Good morning, everybody. Man, welcome to the Vista. It is so great to have you here today. If you're new here, here for the first time, maybe first time at church in a really long time, maybe just came to watch somebody get baptized, man, we are so glad that you joined us today. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in, that you make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Um, Before we get started, one quick announcement. It's just a reminder that next Sunday, March 3rd, we're going to have another night of worship, 5 p.m. here at the Vista. This night of worship is especially unique, though, because Jordan's written a number of songs, I think it's nine or ten of them at this point, uh, that he's played over the course of the last few months and year, and he and the band are going to play those songs live, and then we're going to record them for an album that will then produce and will be released later on in the year. And so, if you want to be like a a recorded artist. You just show up on Sunday and you sing along. And trust me, this is the only chance some of y'all are going to get, okay? Because I've heard a lot of you sing. You're not going to get another chance at this thing. This is the only one. And so when you make sure you come, sing along, support the band, it'll be a really, really great time. So that's next Sunday, 5 p.m. here at the Vista. Uh, today, we are in the fourth week of our series called Chasing the Wind, a series where we're walking through this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been here for just one week of the series, you've probably discovered that Ecclesiastes can be a sneaky, challenging book. Like over the past few months, I've been reading through Ecclesiastes in preparation for the series, and I walked into it with this expectation that Ecclesiastes was a book of simple, straightforward wisdom that was really easy to apply to your life. You just read what Solomon says, and then you do it. It's very, very simple. But as it turns out, I was very, very wrong because as it turns out, a lot of the stuff that Solomon says, it is, it is depressing, it is confusing, it is somewhat contradictory in different moments. It can even sound a little bit unchristian at times. And that's kind of to be expected because technically speaking, you know, Solomon wasn't a Christian. You know, he was writing centuries before Christ during this era where they didn't really have much of a concept of the afterlife, much less a full blown concept of the resurrection, and this means that throughout the book we're having to sort out how our post-resurrection position affects our understanding of Solomon's pre-resurrection wisdom is challenged in interpreting Ecclesiastes. But all that said, there is something about Solomon's pre-resurrection position that enables him to just be a little bit more honest about life than a lot of us are willing to be. There's something about Solomon's pre-resurrection position that enables him to just have a little bit more clarity about the shape of reality than a lot of us have. So I was thinking about this this question that I find very interesting. It's relevant to the topic at hand. Here's the question. Are modern people more or less delusional, meaning more out of touch with reality, than ancient people are? Now, it's, and it's tricky because obviously in all sorts of ways, we modern people, we're way more in touch with reality because we know all these stuff these poor ancient Neanderthals didn't know. You know, we know that the world isn't flat, all of us except Kyrie Irving, but he's a map now, and so he can believe the earth is whatever shape he wants so long as he shoots that round ball into the hoop, I don't care, trapezoid, hectagon, it doesn't bother me. We now know that throwing a woman in the water to see whether or not she sinks or floats is not a good test for whether or not she's a witch. Any Monty Python fans in the house? She's a witch. It's, she's a duck. Yeah. Not a great test. We all know that it's asking her whether or not you can go play poker with your buddies, right? That's the real test. And then let's not even get started on all the medical stuff, okay? We now know that bloodletting, 
which was the ancient medical procedure wherein you basically bled somebody out to try to cure whatever ailed them. Not a great medical procedure as it turns out. We now know that trepanation, which was this other ancient medical procedure where you would drill a hole through somebody's skull. Not a great remedy for a headache. Who knew? But this is the common knowledge for now time. My personal favorite, y'all, and I'm not making this up, we now know that urine tasting is not a great medical diagnostic. So literally, old doctors, they would take your, your urine centuries ago and they would swish it around and taste it in order to diagnose you for an illness. So it'd be like, oh, I'm tasting a little, oh man, this guy's got pneumonia. No, wait, it's just dehydration. Just get this guy a pickle. He'll be fine. But all that said, there are many ways in which we modern people are obviously a little bit more delusional, more out of touch with reality than ancient people, due in large part to the fact that our, our technology has this really paradoxical way of putting us more out of touch with some of life's most basic realities. So, for example, five most basic realities in all of life are what? Food, water, shelter, birth, and death. About as basic as it gets. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that if I were to throw almost any of you out in some sort of primitive survival situation where, where you had to come up with your own food, water, and shelter, well, I, you know, how long do you think you'd survive? Until your, your cell phone ran out of batteries, you went into TikTok withdrawals, how long would you last? Five minutes, 30 minutes, maybe a day for some of you? And then there are no more realistic experiences in all of human life than birth than death because by my math, everybody is born and everybody dies. You can check me on that, but I think that's right. And up until very recently, everybody experienced a lot of births and a lot of deaths because everybody was born at home and everybody died at home. It's not uh, until very recently that we kind of moved birth and death outside of the home. <clears throat> we outsourced it to a small group of professionals, which means that most of us no longer directly experience life's two most basic experiences, birth and death. And so, who is more out of touch with reality? The urine sommelier swishing some <laughs> wee around on his palate to see whether or not you have cancer? Or the modern engineering major who can't make a fire without a starter log, right? It's a tough, I don't know who's more out of touch with reality. All that to say Solomon's ancient wisdom is challenging because and especially because it reveals the extent to which many of us are in many ways painfully out of touch with reality. And getting back in touch with reality, it, it is good and it is necessary, but it can also be very, very painful. It's like getting a bone set. And that's what Solomon is doing in Ecclesiastes. He's forcing us to get back in touch with reality. We're going to pick it back up where Dave left off last week in Ecclesiastes 3. We'll start in verse 16. We'll read through chapter 4, verse 3. It'll be up here on the screen for you as well. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. All right, so Solomon, or an admirer of Solomon, we don't know for sure, Solomon says this. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun, this is Solomon's term for life on planet earth, that in the place of justice there is wickedness, in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So I said to myself, well, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order to see that they are but beasts, in order for them to see that they are but beasts. 
For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all return to the dust. Just like Joel talked about on Ash Wednesday. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast ascends downward to the earth. Now I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. For that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no one to comfort them either. So I congratulated the dead who were already dead. I don't know what other dead people there be, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <clears throat> Why Solomon? Huh? More than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen all the evil activity that is done under the sun. Right, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16 through 4, 3. So one of the keys to understanding Ecclesiastes is understanding that Solomon is not here offering us his full and formal and final thoughts on everything, but rather Solomon is more informally talking it out in front of us. It's more stream of consciousness. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis puts it like this. She says, as is frequently the case, especially in these early chapters of Ecclesiastes, we must not run too far with the surface words or claims. They provide an interim report on Solomon's thinking as the drama of his quest unfolds, not a settled conclusion. So, for example, it would be like if you and me were, were talking out, we're talking about parenting, and I were to say to you, ah, you know, you could make a case that kids ruin your life. And you were to run from there and go, you wouldn't believe what Austin Fisher said. He said people should not have kids, that they are a scourge and a plague on planet Earth. Meanwhile, no, that's not what I said to you, man. I was just complaining because all of us parents know that complaining helps keep us saying that's all I was doing. And also, you couldn't make a case that having your life ruined by kids is a good thing because all of us have to get our lives ruined by something, right? And so if your life is going to be ruined by something... Kids are pretty good candidate to ruin your life, right? So that's what's going on here with Solomon, man. He's just talking it out. He's trying to better understand the shape of reality. And the part of reality that he is struggling to understand here in this text is more or less injustice, meanness. As he says it in verse 16, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So Solomon says, look, reality is supposed to have a shape, it's supposed to have a form that is just and righteous. Liars should not get ahead. Wicked people should not prosper. Hard work should pay off. Nobody should have so much that some people don't have enough. The Eagles should not get to play in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Though they did get what they deserved there, didn't they? So reality, reality is supposed to have a shape that is just, that is righteous, that is good, but man, look around you. It, it just doesn't. It doesn't. Terrible, unjust things happen all day, every day. And they will continue to do so until the end of our days under the sun. And so all of you peppy optimists, Ted Lasso's in the room. Need to listen up for a second, okay? You know who you are. Because here's the deal. We, the people, are sick of you. 
We're sick of you. We're sick of you gaslighting us, telling us it's all great, telling us it's all going to be fine, telling us everything is always awesome, telling us the glass is always half full. Because you know what? No. In point of fact, no. Sometimes the glass is not half full. In fact, sometimes the glass has been shattered on the ground and you have to chew on the broken pieces of it. Like when you have to watch Patrick Mahomes, a fellow East Texas boy, lead the Kansas City Chiefs to Super Bowl after Super Bowl. Meanwhile, the Dallas Cowboys kicker is busy shaking extra points into the Atlantic Ocean. It's not okay. Patrick Mahomes is supposed to be a cowboy. You can put that on my grave. Patrick Mahomes is supposed to be a cowboy. So Solomon speaks for all of us who are, we are sick of the optimists and their relentless optimist propaganda. When he says, not that he hates life, that's not what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is he finds life frequently hateful. Well, to put it in in the term that has become popular nowadays, Solomon is arguing that instead of just and righteous, reality is systemically unjust. It is systemically indifferent. It's systemically mean. This is pretty depressing, if you haven't caught on yet. And believe it or not, it gets even more depressing. Because in verse 17, Solomon, he's, he's trying to soften his very pessimistic take on the meanness of life, the hatefulness of life. And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, well, you know, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So Solomon says, okay. Life is, is hateful and it's mean and it's unjust, but you know what? God's going to sort it out. Doesn't that sound good? God's going to sort it out. I like that. How's God going to do that, Solomon? And Solomon says, well, uh, everybody's just going to die anyways. So, you know, I mean, nobody gets away with anything for too long. That's Solomon's answer. And then it gets even more depressing. Because then he starts talking about how we're actually not that different from animals so far as he can tell. And who knows for sure that it's not just lights out the end when we die. It is very bleak stuff. And so then finally Solomon comes to this conclusion. Conclusion he comes to at various moments in Ecclesiastes. Where he says what he thinks we should do given the meanness, the injustice of reality. Here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 22. I have seen then that nothing is better than that man should be happy and his activities, for that is his lot. And I want you to let the full absurdity of this conclusion settle in for you for a second. In light of the world's systemic injustice, in life of life's relentless meanness, in light of these vicious structures of oppressed and oppressors that oppress both the oppressed and the oppressors, what Solomon thinks that you should do in response is to be happy in your activities. I know, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds absurd. Sounds absurd, but maybe Solomon is on to something, okay? Hear me out for just a second. We've had some fun thus far at the expense of the optimist and the Vista family. Because the optimists, bless their hearts, they just, they just keep denying reality, don't they? They can't call a spade a spade. They can't call sadness, sadness, meanness, meanness, injustice, just. They always have to try to spin it. They deny reality. 
But the optimists are not the only people who deny reality. Because the optimists have a, an inverted, oppositional, emo doppelganger that we might lovingly refer to as the catastrophizers. Yeah? Oh, you know the catastrophizers. They, they look at the world and all they see is injustice and misery. And they think that everything is always getting worse. But in the catastrophizer's defense, it can often feel like everything is always getting worse, can it? I think it can feel that way. Due in large part to the fact that we live in an era of what I like to call catastrophe porn. There's something in us that likes to indulge in acting like our cultural moment is uniquely catastrophic. So, for example, I love this. This is one of my favorite things ever. This data scientist created this algorithm wherein he took all of the articles that the New York Times had published over a 50-year period from 1955 to 2005, right? So, tens of thousands of articles. And the algorithm scanned all of these tens of thousands of articles for the usage of positive words and negative words. So, positive words are words like good, nice, beautiful. Negative words are words like terrible, horrific, awful, crisis. And it mathematically confirmed that the news has become much more negative over the last 50 years. And that was like 20 years ago, right? Imagine if they did it now. Here's a little graph of it showing, right? So it found that our uh, current maximum news positivity is more negative than our past recent maximum news negativity. Okay, that's what that yellow line is. So in other words, the most positive news day today is more negative than the most negative news day 50 years ago. So we, just hypothetically, we get more anxious and fretful about something like, I don't know, it's so tough to think of an example. Maybe like a Chinese balloon. Just hypothetically. Then our grandparents did about the possibility of a possible world-ending nuclear war with Russia. We get more freaked out by the balloon. It's almost like a bunch of lonely modern people sitting alone in their phones late at night, doom scrolling through trauma and injustice porn. It's not a great idea. I know it's surprising. So you get it. A lot of us are walking around acting like life is a catastrophe that's either happening or is about to happen. But, you know, maybe it just is in fact the case that we live in a uniquely undressed, awful, and catastrophic age. Maybe that's true. But maybe it's not true. And in point of fact, it is definitely not true that we live in a uniquely catastrophic, unjust, and awful age. In point of fact, it is definitely the case that we live in the most stable, safe, and righteous moment of human history. We've talked about this a few times over the last couple years. And look, I know that I can say some controversial things from time to time. I understand. I don't mean to. This is my mom's fault. Um, (laughs) But it's really interesting to me that nothing I ever say solicits more pushback than when I tell people that the world's actually pretty awesome right now. (laughs) Nothing makes people angrier when... 
I take their catastrophizing from them. It's almost like people need their catastrophizing. In fact, I've already forwarded all my emails for the week today. And so y'all go ahead and send those things in. He'll come back to just a thousand emails, right? This next week will be fantastic. So look, I get it. I like to catastrophize as much as the last person. But y'all, this is not up for debate. Because yes, life can be mean and it can be unjust, but it is also objectively, indisputably, mathematically true that life is the nicest and the most just that it has ever been, and it's not even close. So for example, we'll do some crowdsourcing here. Does anybody know what the average life expectancy was in the 1700s? If you can get it right, I'm gonna give you this T-shirt, American Gothic Apocalypse T-shirt, okay? So you gotta raise your hand, you're gonna guess what was the average life expectancy in the 1700s? 32, 42, 40, 37, what? 31, what? Getting close. Okay, too many people talking now. Didn't anticipate this. The average life expectancy in the 1700s, and just, if you got it right, I'll just trust you, Scout's Honor, was 29 years old. Who guessed 29 years old? Anybody? You? You really did? Don't lie in church. Okay. Oh, my bad, my bad. Just Jasmine, no, it's okay. 29 years old. Raise your hand if you're over 29 years old. You would have been gone, man. 300 years ago, you wouldn't even be with us anymore. You had a good run. You know what the average life expectancy is now? This is worldwide, not just America. Worldwide life expectancy now? 72 years old. 72 years old. Uh, advances in modern medicine over the last 20 years have saved the lives of over 100 million children. Is anything more tragic than the death of a child on planet Earth? Anything in the whole world? No. Saved the lives of over 100 million children. Uh, in the 20th century, okay, not that long ago, smallpox killed 300 million people. Do any of you even know what smallpox is? It doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, y'all, it wasn't that long ago that something like, I don't know, like diarrhea was basically a, a terminal illness. Like the first time you were out in the field and that tummy was rumbling, brother, you better get your affairs in order because you do not have long. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, that first squirt, and it's like, uh, gather the kids around. I got to tell them goodbye. Banana wasn't going to save you, man. It's gone. You were done. First rumble, you're dead. I'm actually not aware of a single measure of human well-being that is not more or less the best that it's ever been. Life expectancy, education, poverty, racism, war, abuse, violence, you name it. And while it is far from perfect, it is nevertheless the best that it has ever been. All that to say, there are a lot of us who, with the best of intentions, we're doing something really, we can get that picture down, that's starting to creep me out. Um, <laughs> ah. We're doing something very understandable, but it's very, very dumb. Namely, we are waging a war against reality. And what I mean by that is many of us are unwilling to accept that we can't make life perfect. We are unwilling to accept that we cannot make life perfectly safe. We are unwilling to accept that we cannot make society, any society, perfectly just. We are not willing to accept that nobody is getting out of life alive. Mortality rate has set at 100% for approximately 
all of human history. Nobody's getting out of here alive. Now, to be clear, there's a really important tension here because there is a sense in which Christians should be people who wage a war against reality because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's direct assault on fallen reality, right? Uh, sin, suffering, and death, they used to have the last word. They shaped reality as we know it. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God rejects fallen reality by creating a new reality in which redemption, healing, and life get the final word. And so we absolutely need to embrace a certain kind of activism wherein we actively work to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. That's an essential part of being a Christian. It's not up for debate. But on the flip side, our activism needs to be complemented by our eschatology. If you're under 40 in the room, you really ought to write this one down because you're going to need to hang on to this one for a while. Our activism needs to be complemented by our eschatology, meaning our understanding that the full and final victory over fallen reality is going to be won by God, not us. And it will not be won and accomplished in history so much as at the end of history as we know it. Now, to again be really clear, I'm not saying that activism isn't important. Not only is it important, but it is essential. It's the other side of mission. It's something Christians absolutely have to do. We're called to do. But what I am saying is that activism without any real eschatology, right? And activism that refuses to accept that we cannot make life perfect is an activism that is destined to collapse under the weight of its own anger and its own anxiety. Case in point, why do you think it is that our mental life keeps getting worse and worse even as our real lives get better and better? How could that be that during this era of human history when everything is up and up and up when it comes to human well-being and flourishing that our mental health goes down and down and down and down? How could both of those things be true? For example, the CDC just released a study showing that teen girls are currently experiencing record levels of sadness, with 60% of teenage American girls saying that they live lives filled with persistent sadness. Think about that. A lot of you have teenage girls in the room. Now, this led the CDC's head of the Adolescent Health Program to say, young people are telling us that they are in crisis. And I couldn't agree more. And do you think that perhaps, maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons young people are in crisis is because we keep acting like everything is a crisis? Parents, don't be surprised if you run around your whole life acting like the sky is falling, that your kids are constantly worried that something's going to fall on them. I don't know how it's happening. I can't, I can't believe it. Yes, you can believe it's happening. And you need to take some responsibility for it. All right? Now, there is no simple formula here. And there is a sense in which we all have to sort this out for ourselves. But I think it is clear that a lot of us, self very much included, we are trying to master reality. We are trying to overcome reality. We are trying to defeat reality. And I hate to break it to you, but this is not a fight that you are going to win. Reality always wins until God wins at the end of days. And yes, God acts in us and through us now to prepare the way for that full and final victory. But God has not asked you to act as if your activism is the world's only hope. Because just as eschatology without activism leads to indifference and injustice, 
So activism without eschatology leads to incessant, catastrophizing, and anxiety. To put it as directly as I know how, the world doesn't have to be perfect for you to have joy. Because if the world does have to be perfect for you to have joy, then man, you can't have joy. And more to the point, your joylessness, it's not going to do a daggum thing to make the world a better place. Your joylessness contributes nothing to the world's well-being. Not one thing. And this brings us back to Solomon's very frustrating advice, seemingly inadequate advice, that given the world's systemic meanness and injustice, the best thing that we can do was what? Be happy in our activities. That's what Solomon said. So the word translated activities in verse 22 is probably better translated work. It's the word that is used frequently in the Old Testament to refer to the work of God in creation. So, for example, Psalm 19.1, really famous example. It says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work, the activity of his hands. And so what Solomon seems to be saying here is that in response to the world's massive meanness and injustice, the best thing that we can do is submit to that small and patient work of being faithful with the tiny piece of creation that God has given us to work, that God has given us to be active in. And this can manifest itself in in many ways depending upon the piece of creation that you have been given, but it's a call to do small, patient, good work. So in summary, be faithful with your little piece of the earth. Nobody gets much. We all get this little bitty piece of the earth. Help it to become a more gentle, just, and compassionate place. Because if everybody was faithful with their little bitty piece of the earth, instead of constantly fretting and catastrophizing about the awfulness of the earth, then the actual earth would become a more gentle, just, and compassionate place, wouldn't it? As we await the final action of our good and faithful God. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for having us here in your imperfect but still very good world today. We gather before you, old friends, new friends, and God, we do confess that the world is unjust. We have looked with Solomon and we have seen that in the place of righteousness there is wickedness and injustice. We confess that we have been victims of that and we have also been perpetrators of that in all sorts of ways. And so we ask God that instead of being overwhelmed by the meanness and the wrongness of reality, instead of being crushed with anxiety, we would be able to see that our activism is not the world's only hope. It's important, but it's not the world's only hope. You are the world's only hope. And our world lies in the hands of a good and faithful God who has not asked us to live joyless, anxious lives as if that will help. It won't. And so we bring all of our anxiety, all of our pain, all our trauma before you, not to dismiss it, but because we trust you with it. We know that you are good and faithful and that you have asked us to just be faithful with our little bitty piece of creation that is our lives, our world, our families, our church, our community. Help us to do that a little bit better. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.